We are back after a two-week summer recess on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Layla Atassi, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston, two of whom had some time off in that break, and one we will be talking about later. Finally, we'll get her break in August. <laughs> Laura, I'm talking about you. How are you all? I missed you. Aww. Did you really miss us? <laughs> I, I was thinking, you know, I felt bad like a, on a previous vacation when Householder got expelled, Larry Householder got expelled, and Mike DeWine lifted the coronavirus restrictions. I thought, oh, no, I missed all this news. And uh, Chris, you know, I think we're giving you an AWOL award for being gone during the big first energy <laughs> revelations and the Guardians news and everything. But I know you feel really bad about that. Yeah, I, I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great break. It was good to unplug. But I did miss talking to you all. And so let's start up anew. Let's begin. With First Energy admitting it used $60 million to bribe state leaders, and with several defendants in the corruption scheme already having pleaded guilty, how are former CEO Chuck Jones and State House leader Bill Seitz still saying no crime occurred? Jane, this is a, a question that really gets us into the whole discussion of the revelations of last week. This was as big a story as has come all summer. What? Let's start with what the actual news was, and then we'll get to my question. Right. You know, I think to, to your point, though, it's, you know, in a lot of ways, this wasn't surprising because we knew for a long time about the $60 million bribery scheme. But this was still a blockbuster. And I think what made it so were the details that were laid out in this agreement. The news was that First Energy signed what's called a deferred prosecution agreement with the feds uh, to to avoid being charged with a, a weird charge called um honest services wire fraud, which is kind of like bribery. Um, and they agreed to pay $230 million. And and they also agreed to admit all the uh, ways that they tried to corrupt the system by bribing. They did corrupt the system. They didn't try to corrupt the <laughs> yeah, system. They completely true. corrupted the system, despite what Bill Seitz and Chuck Jones says. Right. And and then to that point, so it, it's, it's stunning. You know, you look at these documents, you've got text messages and conversations and the actions that they took the these executives congratulating themselves for manipulating state government and thanking Sam Randazzo the former chairman of the of the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio for for helping them avoid a rate review and to get this corrupt legislation passed to bail out the nuclear plants and they're they're just like hey yay us we did this we you know and then you have the contrast with Chuck Jones, the former CEO, finally speaking out, and, and Randazzo, both issuing statements with very strong denials that they or the company did anything wrong. And and when you put those side by side, you, you just scratch your head. I mean, Randazzo said he never <clears throat> performed any official act, action in my capacity as chair to further First Energy's legislative, regulatory, or other interests. And, you know, he said this 4.3 million bucks that they gave him right before he became the chair was just part of his consulting uh, agreement. And and let's not forget Larry Householder here also, who's been under indictment in this whole scheme for engineering it, the former disgraced House Speaker. He 
issued a statement saying, oh, you know, these were because First Energy has claimed in the past these were just political contributions and that's that's what they were. And, you know, they're protected by the First <laughs> Amendment and I'm innocent, you know, so no, no, it's just I, I still alternate come back reality. To, I just come back to that you have guilty pleas by participants mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the bribery scheme. They're saying, yes, there was a bribery scheme and we were major players in it. Now First Energy is spending $230 million to cleanse its soul for the crimes it participated in, admitting the whole thing. The, there was a paragraph deep in one of the stories last week that really stood out to me. It said the executives who made the decision to do the bribery didn't tell others in the company about it. So that means the feds know who those executives are and yet they're not charged. And I start to worry that this is going to be like the banking crisis of 2008, where all the bankers who caused the huge financial fallout, the crimes they committed, and not one was charged. Is this going to be a case where the, the utility pleads guilty, but the people, the actual people that committed the crimes don't get charged. I was shocked at Chuck Jones' statement. I mean, he's apparently got a couple of former U.S. attorneys working for him. And you would think that the former U.S. attorneys would say, hey, Chuck, you really don't want to poke the bear here. You don't want to come out and say there's nothing to see here because it just gets the federal prosecutors more fired up <laughs> to get you. And I, I just was well, surprised because he's got to be worried that charges will come his way. For sure. Well, you know, at the press conference, the U.S. attorney uh, said this agreement does not preclude charges against individuals. But then he wouldn't go there when people asked, OK, well, what about this, this and this, you know, and he, no, not going there. So, you know, you you've got to believe that that's under consideration. I, yeah, you know, but, Jane, if, but, but I don't understand why. The delay. I mean, the company has admitted it. They've identified the executives who did it. You know, so if the company says, yes, our company committed a crime, our executives made the decision to commit the crime. Where is the U.S. attorney? Why aren't they charging people? I don't get it. Well, as I said, you know, I haven't had a call from him uh, in a few days now, so I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, you also did uh, mention Bill Seitz in, in your initial question here. So I'll just say he's the guy, of course, who famously declared on the House floor that House Bill 6 was not corrupt. Um, now, even he seemed taken aback by what was in these documents. He told Andrew Tobias that they contained damning allegations, but he did sort of stick by his position that, the scandal didn't implicate anyone in the House besides Householder, and Householder's been expelled. Uh, of course, he was against that. Um, he wanted the case to play out, you know, um, and for the legislature to at least wait until the end of summer to to kick Householder out and make what he called a more informed choice. But it was funny. He said, had we postponed it, he, he said, you know, we would find out what other shoes fall out of the closet over the summer. And then he said, and today a lot of shoes fell out of the closet. So, yeah, but, but let, let's go back. Let's revisit though. He tried to bail out this thing after we knew how corrupt this bill was. He, oh, was and working... he still says it's good policy. Right. It would have saved, you know, ratepayers' money.
Right. I mean, he, he the guy is, it's inexplicable how he's standing behind it. He's in the bag for First Energy. He was in the bag for Householder. And it just keeps getting worse. So every time there's a new revelation, we're going to call him and say, so really, you still stand behind that? You really think this was good policy? This is the way government should work? I mean, the guy should be, it should be bounced out of there. He's doing a terrible job. Let's talk about Mike DeWine. Um, Mike DeWine yeah. has, has remained kind of separate from this whole thing. Until this, Randazzo was his choice, and he appointed Randazzo the head of the uh, Public Utilities Commission of Ohio, knowing the critics were saying this guy is way too close to First Energy. Now it's clear Sam Randazzo got a $4 million bribe. That's what is in these documents, even though they don't name him. So how does that look for Mike DeWine when he runs for re-election next year? I'll tell you, I don't think it looks good. Andrew Tobias did excuse me, a great analysis on how these latest revelations really brought it a step closer to to DeWine um, in that, as you said, this is a cabinet level position. He knew the guy's history, although he said in a statement that he issued that, oh, everybody knew what, you know, Randazzo's history was. It was a he, he was a known subject matter expert on these things. But I knew nothing about his motives. And if what the if the allegations are true, then, you know, um, I, I knew nothing uh, about that. And so he said he's going to make a um, charitable contribution in the amount uh, you know that he got from First Energy. But it's not clear to me, like, is he returning individual contributions from executives? Is he what about dark money that was used to benefit perhaps him and people around him? You know. I, so we don't know like what this amount is or anything, but you know his path to re-election was already a bit challenging because he's facing opposition not only from a Democrat or Democrats, but uh, but from his own party, from the right, people who don't like the way he put the coronavirus restrictions on on Ohioans, and and so there's there's a lot of people who you know they don't like that, so. They're both of those, um, you know, he's he's getting the corruption uh, uh, tag from both of those uh, opponents. Well, let's remember, too, he, he when he came into office, First Energy had been trying to get this corrupt legislation for years, couldn't do it. He came into office, householder comes into office and they both immediately say, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. This is great. Re- rejecting all of the previous questions about it. So the bill gets passed through corruption. He signs it, and then there's a move to get rid of it, and and the corrupt forces hire basically thugs to go out and stop the signature collection, to put it on the ballot. DeWine did nothing to yeah. to stop that. He did nothing to make sure that the the process be protected. And now it turns out he picked the OU right. the, the uh, utilities commission chief, who who. Although he put out a statement, too, where he's still claiming yeah. we did great work. It's amazing that, that they're poking the bear. As and DeWine called are. him a good person after the FBI raided his home. That's, that is going to come back to haunt him. This is this is Laura Johnston. I mean, that's what I was just thinking. We kind of recapped that resignation letter we put up again on Thursday. Um, and that was Chris's idea just to bring that back around. Let's show everybody what he originally said. He's like, he's not under investigation. <laughs> he's a good guy. And it, it's just it was a V. It wasn't just like, oh, this is disconcerting. You know, I'm this 
this bothers me. It was just like, a, he's a stand-up guy. Why would you think he's under investigation? It's like, because the FBI's at his house. <laughs> Could I also just make uh, say one more thing? These documents also make a really disturbing reference to people called state official one and state official two. We don't know who they are, but this was in reference to a conversation between Chuck Jones and another former First Energy executive who talked about how, you know, it was a close call, but they managed to get Randazzo into this PUCO job. And the one guy says, that bullet grazed the temple. Um, and Chuck Jones responded, forced state official one, state official two to perform battlefield triage. It's a rough game. So who are those state officials? Right. That's a burning question. Right. It's look, this isn't isn't over by a long shot. Uh, I just when when do, do the people at First Energy get held accountable? We'll see. You're listening to this week in the CLE. So what does everyone think about the new name for Cleveland's baseball team? Laura Johnston, this was rather big news on on Friday. The Guardians, it seems like that's the best name. I think I was on record saying that earlier this year on this podcast. So what's that, the deal? That must be why they went with it, Chris. Yeah, well, no, they went with it because it was the obvious, <laughs> smart, smart move. It is Look. the obvi obvious choice. It's been the front runner since the beginning of the process, which became really clear last July that the team was going to change their, their name and use the Guardians of Traffic staff statues on the Hope Memorial Bridge's inspiration. So it's been a front runner since then. I mean, people talked about the spiders. There was, you know, a couple others that were thrown around, like the Rockers, which we had as a WNBA team at one point. But I'm a fan of it, honestly. The spelling is similar to the Indians. They're keeping the colors and a very similar script, just a little more gothic. And I feel like the city is going to embrace it, even if there are some conservative fans that are upset. They think that the, the, the team is giving up their identity and they think I'm an Indians fan. I'm always going to be an Indians fan. I think there are huge possibilities here for the name. It's, you know, kind of strong and powerful, but it's gritty. It's a nod to the city's industrial past, but shows that Clevelanders take care of each other. But it is a big change. They've been the Indians since I think 1915. Um, and I think everybody was ready to get their their guardians gear to show the support of this, but you can't even get that till the off season. So, well, actually, you can get it. You just well, if you get it, it's for a roller derby team. Social media is blowing up today because Cleveland has a sports team named the Guardians that plays roller derby. And if you look up ClevelandGuardians.com, you get their website. I'm confused as to how the Indians did not get that locked down. This 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 kind of came fast yeah. right we weren't expecting this and i i wonder if the reason they did this they got this out of the way it's largely being embraced except for the diehard fans that wanted to keep the indians name i wonder if they got this out of the way because they're about to ask for a hundred million or more for the stadium from the taxpayers and they didn't want this thing hanging out there we know this is coming any day now uh, but but the name change seemed like it had so much discontent with the fans. This kind of removes that. Yes. I don't know. I agree with you that it felt a little rushed and some sports folks I was talking to agreed with that. I mean, it came out on Twitter about like 950 maybe on Friday morning and then they announced a news conference. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to have a news conference. There's going to be an announcement. It wasn't like 
okay, we know there's this is coming. We had a story on the Thursday night last week saying they've reached a decision, but they're not ready to announce it yet. So I don't know what happened overnight that all of a sudden they were like, we got to go. Somebody's got a tip or what, why they pushed it out there. But all of a sudden it was on Twitter and it's Tom Hanks narrating a two minute video showing some gorgeous views of the ballpark and fans and the river and saying, you know, we are all guardians. And, and you're like, right, okay. Let, let me stop you there. Because Tom Hanks I isn't know. from Cleveland. He's not, but they, he says we. You're like, I Wait. know, I know. But they have an announcer named Tom in Tom Hamilton, who's probably one of the very best baseball announcers in history. I grew up listening to Harry Callis in Philadelphia. And Tom Hamilton's the first person I thought since then that was great. Why Tom Hanks? I don't get it. I mean, I don't That's know why not. Of, who Tom doesn't Hamilton? love Tom Hanks? Right. <laughs> Come on. Right. He's I got mean, a lot of he does have here. a history with Cleveland starting at the Great Lakes Theater and and he's a longtime fan of the team. But yes, when when Tom so, Hanks is saying we, you're like, wait, you don't live in Cleveland. So there's yeah. no announcer in all of Cleveland that can hold a candle to Tom Hanks in in boasting about our Cleveland team. I mean, we couldn't find anybody in Cleveland, so we had to go to Hollywood. As soon as I heard Tom Hanks' voice, I got choked up. (laughs) It's Tom Hanks. Okay. Well, that one, the the Tom Hanks thing did did throw me. So, Jane Cahoon, you're a resident Indians fan. You go to more games than anybody I know. Are you a Guardians fan? I think I am now. I I have to say my, my first gut reaction wasn't very positive. It just didn't seem like a very fun name. It seemed a little boring. But... Once I considered the reasons for it, and as Laura described some of the history behind it, it, it's really grown on me. I mean, the idea that the Hope Memorial Bridge connects the east and west parts of the city and welcomes people to our city, and we need something unifying here. Um, Steve Litt laid it out really well in a piece that he did about, he, he said they're symbols of the proud, unified, resurgent place Cleveland aspires to be. And and so uh, anyway, I, I think the, the only weird part for me is that uh, the similar name, like that it ends in D-I-A-N-S. And I was thinking maybe I could make a lot of money if I created like iron-on patches that, that just had like <laughs> G, G-U-A-R. And then everybody could okay. um, retrofit their t-shirts. And, Actually, and, that might have that's a great idea for like a just a t-shirt to to go from one script to the other the old indians font to the new guardians font i mean somebody's going to make that shirt jane it might as well be you you're going to retire yeah. you got a new business proposition yeah i i uh, i wish i had the wherewithal in business i'd be doing it i love the name i think that logo of the baseball with the two g's on the side of it is like throwback eh. to the 1950s does nothing for me i was hoping to see real real art based on the actual guardian images because i think that's a well those we are iconic. Did have a story um that delved into that and saying they really like the cardinals baseball logo and they wanted to do something like that with a ball or a bat in it but that a lot of teams have two or three logos so the prediction is there will be more they just aren't ready yet which also gives credence to your this feels a little rush theory because they originally said i think the Dolan said in an interview, Paul Dolan said he, they weren't planning to announce it during the season. Why, why not make the merchandise available right away if there's a demand for it? Don't they Maybe because make... it was rushed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, actually, you know what? Year? You know what? The, the the ball logo reminds me of the the movie Major League. You know, the you know, the, uh, right. think of the movie yeah. poster for that where it's like the ball with the mohawk and the sunglasses. 
that was about the, the Cleveland Indians the too. The funny so. thing is, then then it actually the Indians put out another video. It's the beginning of Major League with the credits when they're singing, you know, the Cuyahoga River. It shows the Guardians of Traffic. <laughs> oh, that's just that's interesting. All right, well, we'll have to see how it plays out. It seems like most people are happy. There are some diehards that will never be happy. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Did Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish and Independence Mayor Greg Kurtz end up relenting on their move to oust homeless men from a hotel in that Cleveland suburb? Leila Tassi, we talked about this a good bit before our summer break, and it actually got kind of exciting during the summer break. It did. And and no, though, those guys didn't relent in the slightest on this. Uh, when when the deadline came for, for the men to be removed from the Ramada in Independence, there was this very interesting standoff between the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless and Lutheran Metropolitan Ministry. LMM runs the homeless shelters for the county, and they were the agency that held the contract with the hotel owner to house the men at the Ramada during the pandemic. So the night before LMM arrived to transport the men from the hotel to the men's shelter downtown or to other locations, the Coalition for the Homeless persuaded half of the men to refuse to leave in protest. So they passed out these flyers telling them that the coalition has their back and that the hotel owner won't call the police and that the men should just lock themselves in their rooms and refuse to leave when LMM comes to get them. Meanwhile, LMM circulated their own flyers explaining to the men that if they do that, the men would be responsible for paying their own hotel stay and finding food and other resources because LMM was was out of there. So the men were kind of stuck in the middle between these two agencies that both claim to have them in their best interests and, and, you know, serve them. And so some of the men stayed, others left. Budish and Mayor Kurtz were completely silent through this whole thing. And then in the days after that, NEOC, which is the Coalition for the Homeless, staged a protest outside the county administrative building. And at the last county council meeting, they brought a busload of people, including some of the residents of the Ramada, to testify before county council. And there were some really powerful statements made there, including, you know, a condemnation of the county for allowing this to happen to a group of mostly black men experiencing homelessness just months after the county had declared racism a public health crisis. But then the twist in the whole thing was that Armand Budish wasn't even there to hear it because he was on vacation. So <laughs> just, a, just a really interesting saga. It's unclear what's going to be the end of the story because LMM's contract with the hotel owner runs through August. So technically they're on the hook for $250,000 a month. If they default, who knows how the hotel owner will react to that. He had told me a few weeks back that he was seriously contemplating legal action against all of the parties involved here because they had him sign this contract committing his hotel to this purpose through the summer and then bailed on him, leaving him no chance really of recovering any of the business he might have had in the month of August. So I Is feel like there's still, still one there? chapter here. As far as the men go, I don't think so. I think the last of them had been uh, had been relocated in the last week. Uh, but at least that's what we what they told what uh, the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless had told uh, Courtney Astolfi, who was reporting on their appearance at at uh, county council. So uh, there I don't think there are any left at the hotel. But, you know, the, the well, question should, of the of the contract is still lingering. And right, uh, they should just pay it and avoid the legal battle because right. they're going to lose. He has a contract. Okay, that's a, it's a fascinating how that played out. A lot of um, a lot of protest. I'm sure that'll come up 
if uh, Armand Budish seeks re-election next year when yep. his term comes to an end. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Two weeks after our last podcast episode, the national coronavirus landscape has changed a good deal. Is the Delta variant raging in Ohio as it is elsewhere in the country? And what does Dr. Vanderhoff have to say about the prospects? Jane Cahoon, it's kind of terrifying that this is happening because it's also stoppable if people just get vaccinated. I know, I know. Well, first I'll mention that just yesterday, the state reported 495 new coronavirus cases, and that was the most for a Sunday since we had 683 on May 23rd. And the seven-day average over the last week jumped up to 714, which is the highest it's been since May 28th. It's still nowhere near the numbers we saw during the last huge spike, but it's trending upward. So you asked about Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, the chief medical officer at the Ohio Department of Health, uh, despite uh, his his calm demeanor, he he stated this quite bluntly last week. He said, because of this surging and highly contagious Delta variant, if you don't get vaccinated, you should basically expect to get sick with COVID. Um, he also said that the the disparities in the vaccination rates have essentially created two two different Ohio's, one where the vaccinated are largely protected and another where the, this more transmissible Delta variant is, you know, posing a significant risk for unvaccinated people. It accounted for more than 36% of all infections that were sequenced in Ohio during a two-week period ending July 3rd, which was a while ago already. But um, and and it but it only represented fewer than one percent of a, a infections a month before that. So he basically said, "Hey, it's just a matter of time. It's not it's not when, not if uh, an un, unvaccinated individual develops COVID nineteen. So and go there, ahead. there there is a fascinating study that was released over the weekend out of Great Britain. There was a researcher that was doing studies on cognitive abilities of people and decided in the middle of the pandemic, well, let me see what I can find out about COVID's effect. And what he found was an incredibly close correlation to COVID severity and loss of cognitive ability, meaning the people that had the most severe cases are the dumbest. And the people that had lesser cases didn't lose as much and people who didn't get it were ahead. So, so there's a question now of does COVID have a long-term effect on the brain? Is it is it wrecking brain cells? There was already a finding that gray matter uh, in the in the uh, in the area of the brain that deals with smell and taste has been diminished and people have COVID. But this would be truly frightening. If you get COVID, you become dumb. And, you know, I would argue that the people that are not getting the vaccine already are somewhat diminished in cognitive ability. So we can end up with half the country being really stupid if they don't get vaccinated. You know, this is Layla well, the other fact. No, oh, I just wanted ahead, to say that's all the more reason why we need to protect our kids and not be sending them all to school without masks, without any consideration for uh, for how the, the virus would affect them. Because, sure, they, they don't have the same respiratory distress that, that you know, older older people have when they when they get sick with COVID. But if what you're saying, Chris, is true, that really jeopardizes, it puts, them, puts their health in jeopardy for the long haul. And I'm unwilling to take that Because their brains are still developing. I mean, if you right. think about it, right. they, I mean, they, they were looking at adults who have mostly had their brains get developed. But what if this starts to 
impede brain development in children. It's really frightening. And look, there are always caveats to these studies. Is it is it cause and effect or is it, you know, some other correlation? It was just remarkable. The people who were sick and the people who were sickest had the the least ability to uh, to do basic exercises. Uh, so Could I just point. say too, we do know that the, the as this Delta variant spreads, children and teens are making up a higher percentage of COVID cases and hospitalizations. So you know, and and Layla is right, kids who who contract COVID, you know, maybe they don't get it as badly, but they can develop very serious complications, such as multi-system inflammatory syndrome, that uh, rare but serious complication. And so, and, and, and as Layla said, we've got kids returning to school. Uh, I just found out that the Ohio Department of Health is supposed to have a news conference today to talk about school guidance. So it'd be very interesting to see what they say. Mm. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're going to leave the Ken Johnson story till tomorrow because we have to deal with the Laura Johnston story. <laughs> Is Canada finally going to let Americans visit this summer? Laura Johnson, I could just see you high-fiving and clapping last week. You finally get to go back to your native land. Yeah, my sister was actually on her way to Canada to do like the quarantine thing and follow all the right rules when this news came across and she texted me and I texted back the meme of like Kermit the Frog, like waving his hands and just yelling yay, because this is going to be, I mean, it's like 17 months since the border was open. And since I normally go to her cottage in the summer, it'll be almost two years since I've been back. I haven't seen my my grandmother who's in her 90s or any of my cousins or my aunts and uncles. And so the idea is starting August 9th, vaccinated Americans can be visit, assuming they have a negative COVID test before they come within 72 hours. And the best part for me is that the kids 12 and under who cannot be vaccinated do not have to quarantine because obviously they can't. I mean, otherwise it would not work for my family. You still have to use this Arrive Can app or web portal among them, you know, upon arrival and you have to provide your your papers, but you can go. So you have to show your vaccination card and yes. results of a test? Yes. Exactly. You, so, so when they email you the results of your test, you would just show the border guard your phone that shows it because you don't really get a printout of that. Right. That, that's my understanding. I got to quiz my sister when she gets back today and be like, exactly how did you get this all done? And, you know, what, you know, timing wise, if you want to go up on a Monday morning, you got to get your test on a Friday to make sure it's not too old. And so it's not super simple. I, I don't know how many Americans are just going to do it so they can go to Niagara Falls for a day. But um, this is a big deal, not just for the people who want to go who miss their family, but think about Niagara Falls in 2019, 4 million of the region's 14 million visitors came from the United States. I read somewhere that every month the border was closed cost the country's $1.5 billion between the two of them. So obviously this is late in the summer decision. Not everything's going back to normal. The ferry that typically runs uh, between Sandusky and Pelee Island isn't likely to restart. There's still no uh, flights to the island. So uh, I don't think all of a sudden you're going to snap your fingers and you're like, you know, it's going to be normal, but it, it is a huge step. And I'm really happy that they're they're doing this before the end of summer. Okay. Well, good news for you. Good news for people who want to get to Canada. You're listening to this week in the CLE. I knew we wouldn't get to all the questions. We just had way too much to talk about with the Indians and HB6. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back again tomorrow.